Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week I try to pick a book that I find interesting, and I talk to the author of that book. And this week I'm very, very pleased to say I have my old and dear friend Michael David Fox on the phone, and we'll be talking about his new book. It's a collection of essays, Crossing Borders, Modernity, Ideology, and Culture in Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, MDF, as I like to call you. Um, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Marshall. I'm really glad you called me, and uh, it's been a while, so I'm glad to catch up with you, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I said in the pre-interview that I didn't think we'd have any trouble filling up an hour. We never have in the past, have we? No. <laughs> so so well, let me get right to it. Um, this book is a collection of essays. Why Why did you write it? Why? Why did you put it out now? Well, I've been working on, I worked on this book starting in 2010 and it came out in 2015, but it was kind of a different project from your typical academic monograph, which, you know, I've been doing those kind of books too, and I'm still working on one right now on World War II, which is highly archival and and so on. This was uh, an idea that I had. Um, to do a somewhat different genre of book, which would be a kind of series of interlocking essays. Some of them do involve archival research, and some of them are more focused. Um, But the goal was to try to speak more broadly and sort of interpretively about the course of modern Russian-Soviet history over a broader period of time, and I, I kind of got the idea when I was a fellow in Sweden at the um, Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, which is a social science you know, institute. And I was there with S.N. Eisenstadt, who was a great Israeli sociologist, and a bunch of his colleagues who were working on a book on multiple modernities, theoretical, what you call you know, social theory, and I realized as an archival historian, and this was in the 90s, as you know, remember, the theory, so-called quote-unquote theory, was very popular among historians, that we were not really able to compete in a sort of more um, conceptual mode. And uh, we had these sort of flimsy theoretical introductions, and then we did what we did, which was archival history. Um, and I got the idea that we should not cede the broader kind of interpretive field to people who didn't do real historical research on concrete topics. So this was my attempt, and I don't call it theory, I call it more conceptual interpretive essays to stand back a little bit. And so I started engaging this question of Russian-Soviet modernity, and it involved uh, you know, historical trajectory over regime changes, especially in 1917. And I've been also, the other thing is I've been more 
interested in sort of the smaller genres, articles and essays. And I had written really uh, too many of these over the years. And um, so certainly half of the ones in this chapters in this book are new than they were before published. But I had published a bunch of them, for example, the one on cultural revolution and the, some of the historiographical ones uh, on the debates about modernity versus neo-traditionalism and so forth. I had published them, and they hadn't really gotten the play that I wanted them to get, and uh, they hadn't. I, I, they needed to be updated. So I spent a lot of... Some of these were previously published chapters, but I really reworked them and brought them up down to the present day. So it was kind of an interesting experience for me to actually do this book, I had a lot of fun doing it, too, because instead of, you know, exhaustively going through the archival notes, I was working on the writing and how the essays fit together. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as I uh, said, we were talking before the interview, I was trying to think of a way to introduce the the, the general topic of the essays to a general audience. And really, I, I kind of boiled it down to this question, that is, 25 years on now, after the end of the Soviet Union, what exactly was the Soviet Union as a place? So when I mean place, I mean in the broadest sense, as a country, as a state, as a movement, as a continuation or not of the place we used to call Russia, and we still call it Russia today, I guess. Um, how exactly should we understand this place a quarter century on? What was it? Was it like other places? Was it different than other places? And, and I think that that really captures nicely the, the sort of essence of the, of, the, of, the, of the problematic, as they say, that underlies all of the essays. Um, yeah, maybe- no, I think you're right. I mean, that's the, that's the core of the book, and I lay it out in the introduction. And it's a, and it's a question that preoccupied, preoccupied the field of Russian studies essentially since its founding. So it's kind of a question, it's a historical question that we have to answer, like how different was this country from other countries? How different was communism? Was it something unique, sui generis, or is it comparable to other countries? Or, but it's also a kind of meta question. It's a historiographical question that goes back to the beginning of the field of Russian studies, which arose, you know, uh, it arose in this country, essentially in the interwar period, uh, from emigres who mm-hmm. were debating the question of Russia and the West. And that whole question from the 19th century is similar. You know, was, did Russia have a special path or was it part of Europe? And, you know, the emigres taught that to the founders of our field in the post-war period. And so I see it as a red thread running through the entire yeah. history of Russian studies. How universalistic was it? How particularistic was it? Um, but to get back to the, the question of hand, like uh, from the point, of, from my point of view, there was, some, and, and this is why I was dissatisfied with the debates over Soviet modernities that were in the '90s, and some very good stuff was done, um, you know, to introduce this question: how what was in what ways was Russia and the Soviet Union modern, and therefore like other countries? But they define modern as being like other countries, and the gold standard for modernity was the West. And so it got us back to this question of Russia and the West. Um, And so I was trying to get a more flexible understanding that you can be modern and have your own specific path 
historically that makes you very different from other countries and involves especially uh, long-term trends. The ones I was focusing on, because I'm that type of historian, were cultural and ideological, but I think you could write a similar thing about Russian economic history, about long-term structural features. You know, you yourself wrote a book um, about the Russian moment in world history, about the legacy of Muscovy, uh, you know, for centuries after, and that had to do with a lot to do with the unique or particular qualities of the Russian state as they carried over into. So you could write the same type of type of history you know, in terms of the political system as well. Um, but <clears throat> to get to the root of the question of what what specifically Soviet was different, I mean this was. Um, you know, a radical repudiation of the existing order that came out of World War One. So in that sense, the far right and the far left were very different from the previous um, order that had you know, gone up, that had persisted up until 1914. So there's a lot in this book about far right, far left interactions, actually, uh, as well. Secondly, it was a political party in charge of a state. This is what uh, the great Sovietologist Robert Tucker called a movement regime. And it led to some very peculiar institutional structures. The party, that's why we call it the party state, the hyphen, um, because the, the Communist Party shadowed the state institutions from the Politburo down to the smallest party cell. And that's very peculiar and it was uh, almost, I'd say, unique. So. The institutional history is a part of this story as well. I have a chapter on how the particular party institutions in the 1920s, new ones, uh, such as the Communist Academy, interacted with the old ones, the Academy of Sciences, uh, which went back to Peter the Great. So it led to some very peculiar uh, structures and practices, which I think were new. And that's when the older literature on you know, modern practices that were similar across political different states in different in the same period in satisfying because some of the practices and institutions what we call structures you know were actually quite different in the Soviet Union so I tried to find a middle ground between what was sort of unique and different about the Soviet system and what can actually be compared to, to other countries and then the last point I'd make because you know I could go on literally forever about this to get this into the whole course of Russian history. But the last point is that you raised with the, the point about legacies, um, you know, before and after 1917. And I was writing this at a particular moment when it became clear that after 1991, it wasn't a tabula rasa. A lot had persisted from the Soviet Union and a lot had stood from earlier periods. So there was this huge resurgence in continuity theories in the field. And some of these were quite simplistic. You know, Russia never changes. It's been the same. It's always been authoritarian. And it seemed to me like we now face a situation which is similar to what's in German history, where they have a series of breaks, 1918, 1933, 1945, 1989, the two Germanys. And every major German historian has, at one point or another, weighed in on, you know, what the 
continuities are and underlying the breaks. And, and it's a very challenging question, and it's, it's an interpretive one. And so we have now two major state breakdowns in the, the 20th century, 1917-1991, and you have a lot of continuities across them, but you also have changes that are very significant um, and shouldn't be sort of downplayed and swept under the rug and just say everything's always been the same in Russia. And so, um, so that, that was one of the reasons I actually uh, started in on this. Mm-hmm. I, I really like um, an expression that you used, and it was a question, and that is looking for what was essentially Soviet. I don't know, essentially that might be the wrong word, but what was characteristically Soviet about the Soviet Union, particularly in this early period, because there's lots of debate about that, and it really is an attempt to separate that, what was Soviet, what, what Lenin and the Bolsheviks wanted to do, and what later Stalin did do, um, from other, so we, we might call them reformist tendencies in other places in the first half of the 20th century. Could you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that? What, would, what is your opinion on what was sort of essentially different about the Soviet Union from, say, you know, I don't know, the modernizing, <laughs> and these would be ridiculous analogies, but, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was a reformer, right? He wanted to reform things. Adolf Hitler, he wanted to reform things. I'm sure we could find similar sorts of characters and lots of big sort of... Uh, uh, countries, be they democratic or not, who kind of wanted to change things and make them more democratic, make them more egalitarian, make them fairer, whatever they bring justice and light and truth and all those other things. What was essentially Soviet about the Soviet project? All right. Well, I would say, first of all, it was enormously ambitious. <clears throat> I don't have a particular problem with I don't uh, allergy to the term totalitarian, although it's been misused a lot and politicized, but Total control was never achieved, so I, I, I have problems with it, like many others in the field. But in the sense that certain regimes stand out and were different from, say, liberal ones, um, in the scope of their ambitions to achieve a certain type of uh, uh, kind of interventionism and transformation, that I can definitely agree with. And uh, this Michael Mann once called them uh, a far right and far left, uh, um, you know, national socialism, Stalinism, regimes of permanent revolution. So they made temporary compromises with older groups and institutions. In other highly authoritarian regimes, like let's say Franco, Spain, or uh, many others, they you know they came to accommodations with the church with. Um, with uh, certain social classes, but the compromises that Soviet system made were strategic and temporary, and so that was one thing. The second thing is that the scope of the ambitions, because Marxism posited economic transformation. You had to completely remake the economic base, and it was, in fact, economically the state Socialism, the uh, planned economy, was really radically different in many ways, uh, not especially uh, starting in the late 20s. Um, but Leninism sort of modified Marxism to say, well, first, the political factor is key. We'll use a political party to take control of the state, and then we'll transform society, we'll transform the political system and the economy. So the, uh, you know, the scope of the ambitions were huge. And then in addition to all of that, 
they said, we're going to transform culture because there was a certain span within the Bolshevik party, which I'm very preoccupied, have been very preoccupied <laughs> with it, was back to the pre-war era, you know, in the party schools, in Capri and Longinot. This is people like Leonard Charsky and Patrovsky and um, uh, Gorky. And they thought cultural transformation, creating a socialist culture, was in fact something of a precondition for socialism. They wanted to radically transform culture and create a new man. So there's even the nature of human, uh, you know, the nature of, 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 of man was sort of on the line here. So they, that, that makes it very different from a lot of other regimes. And then, so here comes the, you know, the role and nature of ideology, which is one of the chapters of the book. And that's often seen as sort of the, one of the most unique features of the Soviet Union. And I agree, but I think that uh, because on the one hand, Marxism and Leninism was highly doctrinal. It was disseminated on such a scale. It was so overt. Other countries, including liberal ones, have ideologies. And you might say liberalism is also utopian. I mean, in a sense, you know, you have uh, free and equal citizenship, a complete le- level playing field. There's an element of looking towards a, uh, a future, an ideal future in that and not the really existing present, but that creating a different future was so overt. So it seems to me that the role of ideology is very different, and yet that doesn't mean that you can only study ideology completely just in the Soviet Union. If you start comparing it to the way ideology works in many other times and places, you also find it wasn't completely unique, right? There are ways in which um, ideology uh, was used the way it uh, was disseminated, that are very are quite comparable, and you actually learn more comparing it to other places than just looking at it in isolation. So that points back to the what I tried to say in this book was that we actually have to find a middle way of via media, you know, between complete exceptionalism and complete comparability and universalism, and we have to find it in all these different areas. So. You know, splitting the difference doesn't sound like the most radical thesis, <laughs> but in the history of the field, it, it, some, it turns out it is something new. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you this, and your comments prompted this question. It never really occurred to me before. Uh, I don't know if there is a comparable history to what I'm about to say, whether there's a state that, that did what I'm, I'm going to claim the Soviet Union did. Uh, so uh, comparison would be difficult. But it seems to me one of the things that they managed to do was maintain, and, and I mean this in a kind of neutral uh, sociological sense, their idealism. And even w- when the, 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 the Soviets from very early on ran up against Russian reality, they, they kept their ideals. They, they kept in mind this, this, this end goal, this, we would call it utopian, this utopian goal they had. Whereas most other regimes kind of routinized, they, they made compromises, they, they got, mm. I don't know, they kind of got fat and happy. I don't know what else to say about it. But the Soviets, I mean, this is, I take this partially from uh, Stephen Kotkin once said to me that, I'm sure he said it to many people, that the Soviet Union uh, uh, committed suicide by idealism. <laughs> and I think he was thinking uh-huh. of the Chinese well, in I mean, that I sense. Think that, that is, the, the ideology, yeah, like even Gorbachev really believed in something called socialism when he tried to reform in the 80s. He was a, in many ways a true believer. So in that sense, 
I can agree. So, but I do think that it, I, I teach comparative revolution. I actually tried it for the um, anniversary of the centennial of 1917. I'm going to try to do something on comparative revolutions because people in the Russian field just don't read that literature very often and take it into account. Mm -hmm. But there's kind of a life cycle of revolutions, right? There's a birth and early phase where there's often a broad coalition to bring down an old regime. And then there's a power struggle, the actual regime change. And um, the new regimes are part of the revolution, the life, the biography of the revolution. And that's what, you know, we often stop our histories of the revolution in 19, either in October or 1918 or in 1921. Um, but, you know, the Stalin period, the 20s and 30s were in, in the very direct sense, you know, part of the history of the revolution. So you do see this in certain other revolutions where there's uh, a kind of um, mummification of the revolution and it's put on display. And it's, it's like in Mexico, the ruling party did this for decades and they invoke the ideals of the revolution. But in practice, a lot changes. And it's sort of the old age of the revolution where so there is a decline in the way the ideology can mobilize. And in the Soviet case, it was promising a brighter future for decades. There was kind of a ticking time bomb within the ideology. There was only so many decades that could promise a bright future. It was just right around the corner. So that's another thing. But what happens in the 30s is that you do see this incredible revolutionary transformation under Stalin, which is part of the, you know, the drive, but it, it's channeled in certain ways to political violence, they, they, less emphasis on class and more on nationality, use, of, you know, resurgence of kind of traditional symbols. So it becomes a kind of weird hybrid. Uh, and that's part of the challenge of trying to define what Stalinism was, because in some ways it's very radical, in other ways it's very conservative. I see it as kind of a hybrid. But certainly in the post-Stalin decades, uh, the system is much more entrenched and um, you know I don't see it as as very idealistic in that sense well what, uh, I, what I was for some people yeah I guess what I was thinking about is um, I, I guess a kind of uh, I don't know inability is the word that comes to mind but that's not what I want in other words they run up against things they have an experience it doesn't turn out the way they want it to uh, or at least it doesn't turn out in the way an objective observer might say is optimal you know take something like uh, I don't know, the original five-year plans or collectivization, yeah. bo both of which were very disruptive and, and I, I think by most uh, economic standards, disastrous. And then they do it again. You know, for example, when they take yeah, over Eastern they Europe, they just they decide, well... They don't rethink their, their no. premises. They blame others. Right. And, and then they, they do um, the same thing in Poland or, or someplace like that, or they do the same thing in, in the Baltic states or wherever they do it. They just, they just impose these ideas wherever they find them in the interest of some ideals that, that you know, factory farms are better. And that's that, you know, don't let the arguments get yeah. in the way of your facts. And, and they do this so again and again. Ideology, yeah, I agree with that. I and mean, the political ideology, ideological factors in many ways always trump hmm. economics or practical considerations. And they didn't rethink the premises. Um, and, but the, the, the difference was that starting in the late 20s, um, Stalin committed political murder on a mass scale. So with collectivization, the man-made famine, you're talking millions of deaths. Mm -hmm. And when you justify that 
and so this was really building socialism. It introduces a radical disconnect, which many people can, because many of the true, truest believers were the ones persecuted, so they can see this in a very visceral way. It introduces a kind of, um, you know, what Orwell called the big lie. I mean, there's, there's an element of that in there, in Stalinism. And so, in, yes, they, they continued on, but once you commit, you know, mass violence, then I think the equation changes. And for some people, uh, they became quite cynical uh, or had a kind of, you know, it's, a, it's one of the Sinks' riddles of trying to, you know, this notion of a dual consciousness is probably oversimplistic. But, yeah, you somehow could continue to believe in the bright future while doing certain terrible things in the present. But there's also a thing about, you know, a kind of political gamble on a mass scale, such as Stalin carried out during collectivization or the Great Terror, and um, what that does to a political system. I think there's a kind of a politics of extreme dictatorship. Tim Snyder wrote about this in Bloodlands, by the way, when he talked about um, Stalinism and Nazism. Uh, so for, for him, uh, you know, the Holocaust is a similar type gamble. You know, you start it, the war goes completely different from what's expected. All the, you know, resettlement plans of the Germans were completely, um, you know, it became highly chaotic and, and, and many, they start to lose the war, and yet they still manage to kind of believe that the international Jewish conspiracy is to blame and that they're carrying things out. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an analogy there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that, that really gets right to the, 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 the crux of it, and that is to what extent were they cynical communists after, let's say, the first five-year plans and, and the disasters of collectivization and the famine? And to what extent were they actual uh, communists who simply had said, well, these means justify whatever ends. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know the answer to that, that question, yeah. right? Well, there's one thing, yeah, I don't know if anyone does, but, um, you know, there were different types, and, you know, um, there were some who were kept their disillusionment bottled up or rechanneled it, some who managed to segregate it off to maybe, right now we're going through a, a terrible phase. These are some of the anti-Stalinist Bolsheviks, but still the fundamentals, right? We've nationalized the economy, so the future might be brighter. And Bukharin's last testament, or when he's, you know, what he was writing in prison just before his execution, is sort of along those lines. Um, but it seems to me uh, that one thing to consider was Leninism from the beginning. Or I would say broad, more broadly, Bolshevism, right? Because there were other tendencies within the Bolshevik Party. They combined this sort of uh, utopianism, uh, looking at the world's historical trends and getting the confidence to predict the future and seeing history as a kind of scientific enterprise uh, unfolding in the direction of socialism. They combined that with a really hard-headed practicality that involved being able, you know, to get up in front of crowds of workers to go in and put down a revolt. And so the extremely hard-headed practicality with utopianism was a feature of the system from the Mm get-go. I guess I can't help but think about the Chinese case in which 
you know, Mao had um, done things. He had pushed the party in China in a way that proved to be utterly disastrous and led to the death of millions of people. And not even a couple of decades later, there were Chinese leaders who were saying, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to do something very different, but we're going to call it the same thing. And yeah. this, this just really turned out to be kind of uh, remarkably, I don't know if it was brilliant from the point of view of a hardline communist, but from the point of view of an average Chinese peasant or worker, it turned out very well. And I guess I'm wondering, why didn't that ever happen in the Soviet case? I mean, it's, I know it's kind of a ridiculous question, but, you know, they are sort of parallel situations. You know, you have these dictators, yeah. they do these horrible things, they go truly awry. In one case, they stick to it. In one case, they don't. Well, I'm not a. I have some stuff about the Cultural Revolution. I'm not either. (laughs) But I'll tell you some, just a couple of considerations, okay? First of all, communism didn't exist as long in China. So it got more entrenched in terms of institutional interests. Mao's, you know, had come, introduced introduced communism in China, and then they had this this radical. tempest of the Cultural Revolution, where Mao set, you know, the Red Guards against the uh, elites and against the authorities for to, to fight his political battles. That never happened during the Stalinist Cultural Revolution. You sense that this was a massive cultural campaign, but the party elites were immune from it, and in fact, the party institutions were strengthened as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So when you were able to shift course in China uh, because you didn't have that kind of entrenched institutional stability with very concrete economic and political interests at stake, right? Um, and so that prevented people like Gorbachev. It really tied uh, his hands behind his back. He might have done things differently if he hadn't had to deal with that entrenched interest. So that that's one thing. The other thing is that the, the 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 world of the peasantry was not as transformed because you know Mao was peasant Maoism was a much more of a peasant based movement and after the Great Leap Forward in China when they uh, you know it was a disaster economically but Mao kind of seeded the economic realm apparently and um, more than uh, certainly Stalin did um, so I mean. You know, that's just a couple of considerations. The world of the village and the peasantry was, um, you know, the collective farms, really, um, that was the kind of the Achilles heel of the Soviet system, but it created this really entrenched bureaucracy that was very, you know, every time they do it, it's just that a crisis, World War II, they, you know, scale back the collective farms in trying to reform, they tinker with it, but they can't get rid of that. And it's kind of, you know, it's so entrenched. But maybe, I mean, it certainly does have to do with ideology, because every time you try to create private plots, you know, the party conservatives mm-hmm. rise up against that. So the role, yeah, I mean, there was, I, I wouldn't discount the role of ideology there either. That, you know, every, anything that was trying to tinker with the kind of state ownership of the means of production was really strongly resisted mm-hmm. by, the, by uh, Soviet elites. Yeah, yeah. I remember when, you probably remember this too, when Gorbachev got back from um, being imprisoned or whatever one called he's in Crimea and after the coup, and he gets off the plane and he starts talking about socialism. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at that point, there was a lot that was ritualistic about it. Yeah. Let me just say one more thing on the China thing, because there actually is a chapter in this book that we're ranging a little bit far afield. Like, there's actually not there's not a lot of post-war stuff in this book. Sure. I try to project forward, you know, especially in terms of what was distinctive in the Soviet case. Mm-hmm. What I saw was distinctive was I call this in, what, intelligentsia statist modernity. Like the statism was around in Russia before and after. Mm-hmm. But the role of this re- intelligentsia, yeah, the old intelligentsia was wrecked, but part of it joined the, the Soviet project, and they introduced this, you know, kind of emphasis on high culture, on getting rid of commercialism and culture, in, you know, um, you know uh, uh, an element of, of transforming, uh, of, of favoring, a kind of cult of culture that emerged in the 30s, you know, high culture, uh-huh. and it gave this exalted place to the intelligentsia itself to the point where by the end of the Soviet Union, the most prestigious occupations were army officer and academician, uh-huh. which is very different from many other countries. I mean, they had a different type of consumerism, if you want to even call it that, in the Soviet case. And, you know, some... That was sort of inculcated on a mass scale, and it was very different. So there was this kind of role for the intelligentsia after the revolution. Almost all the other elites were destroyed, and it was the one group along with the party that sort of survived the civil war period. Um, and how relatively did they – I was going to say, I, have to, I kind of have to ask, how did they do that? How, how did they manage to uh, – you know, raise the, the the public image and status of of bookish types. <laughs> I guess I would call yeah. ideologically well, oriented bookish types to this they level. They had a lot of privileges, for one thing, and they controlled culture. It was a branch of the economy. So, you know, under NEP, yeah, you could have private book publishers, but the state in the '30s and after, and the party were kind of micromanaging culture. They reintroduced a kind of popular culture, like Stalinist blockbuster films and things that were quite popular, you know, but they did it in a highly politicized way, and they did it with a great role for the intelligentsia to kind of control it. And um, so part of it was, um, you know, I tried to write about this in my chapter on the Academy of Sciences and the Communist Academy, that they had kind of fused these party and older institutions and so some of the um, kind of agenda of the intelligentsia, which was being transformed along the way, was sort of brought in uh, to the to the um, Soviet project. Like you didn't think of it. in 1920 or 25, the intelligentsia was kind of disdained. They 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 glorified workers and not intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Intellectuals were seen as weak-willed and. They kind of bashed the old intelligentsia very harshly, but by 1935, they were glorifying the intelligentsia as one of you know the major Stalin's. So there were three major classes: you know the, the intelligentsia, the workers, and the peasants. So all white-collar workers were sort of shoehorned into this category, mm-hmm. intelligentsia. And then the, there was kind of this cult of high culture that you know was partly to do with international competition, but you know, it was one of the it was a campaign for culturedness. I write about in the chapter on cultural revolution that um, you know was one of the most successful political campaigns in my view of the whole Soviet period because 
people bought into it without kind of forgetting that it was originally a political campaign. It's kind mm-hmm. of like the best advertiser. You don't know it's advertising. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and I think it does mark a real significant difference between other, and you said you weren't allergic to the word totalitarian, other sorts of regimes that had totalitarian aspirations. For example, in, in Hitler's Germany, uh, intellectuals were not terribly prized, and, and certainly in, in, in Mao's China, they, they were not prized at all, not, not to mention far afield comparisons like the United States, where they're yeah. for, forgotten. <laughs> well, it was a different, you know, they tried to transform and use culture, not in completely different ways in the German case. But the Germans, the Nazis wrecked culture in a way the Soviet didn't. There was always a preservationist strand within Bolshevik yeah. uh, cultural policy, like Lunacharsky was part of this. And so, like, you know, the, the German universities, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a real difference. And I'll just bring it across to you with one example. I had a, just had a PhD student finish a dissertation. Uh, her name is Arena Megoan about the evacuation of cultural institutions during World War II. So 1941, the Germans attacked. They're deep inside Soviet territory, and they're trying to transfer industry and evacuate elites to their rear. And they spend, you know, really a lot of money and very scarce transportation resources to evacuate not only the cultural treasures of the Hermitage and so forth, but the cultural elites. Uh Because they saw the intelligentsia uh, as something that was crucial towards wartime mobilization. Uh, And the intelligentsia did, by and large, respond um, and was a real asset for the Soviet war effort. Uh, so, you know, when you're faced with that kind of decision, do you allocate, you know, train Eshelona to take people away at a time like 1941? That shows where your priorities are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's I think that's right, and it's a good example. Yeah, I mean, I know that when I first started to go to the Soviet Union, I was amazed at the positions that my um, and again, this isn't in the book, but I was amazed at the kinds of positions that my peers had. You know, I would tell them that I teach at a college or university, and they would ask me what the heck I was doing teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so teachers, see, that's for teachers, not for. Intelligent, the intelligentsia. Right. Um, <laughs> well, that was, yeah, exactly. Because research was segregated in the Academy of Sciences. Yeah. So universities were kind of downgraded um, in that system. Yeah, they were. Um, they were. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So I want to talk to you something you, you know a lot about and it's something I'm very interested in, and that's the extent to which uh, we can kind of measure, in a way, their commitment to some sort of communism and their idealism by their commitment to spreading revolution. Of course, at the you know, it's, it's workers of the world unite. It's not workers of... Russia or Azerbaijan unite. Um, and so to what extent um, do, do they maintain, that is, the Soviets, and we're here, we're still talking about the question of what makes the Soviet Union Soviet. To what extent c- can we can we judge their sort of commitment to some sort of communism by their efforts to spread communism overseas? Well, you know, I'm of two minds of this because um, I think that by the 1930s, Soviet state interests really were um, unclearly uh, placed above those of the Communist International. This was kind of a, um, you know, already a process going on in the 1920s, and it was justified by the notion that whatever serves the home of socialism, Soviet state interests, serves world communism. So whatever tactical shift you take, you know, um, in the, the communist, foreign communist parties should 
agree to it. So in some ways, by lashing foreign communist parties to Soviet state interests, it really hurt the world communist movement. I'm not really writing about international communism in this book, but there's not one single successful communist revolution anywhere else except by the victory in World War II, namely Eastern Europe, or in the case of China, you had, uh, you know, Mao had to break with the, those who had trained in Moscow, uh, uh, the Chinese communists who had been, had trained there and, and sort of forged his own independent um, movement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so in some ways they already, they, 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 however, a sort of revolutionary romanticism continued to play a role in a certain way all the way down to Castro and you know, Khrushchev saw the Cuban Revolution was very really enamored with, you know, um, you know, remembering his youth and the youth of the movement. So they kind of rejuvenated the Soviets to see, you know, Che and Castro uh, have this movement in Cuba. So it did continue to play a role. But um, it seems to me that this is actually a typical question that I treat in the book because I try not to segregate out ideology from other factors. I think it's more interesting to not to disaggregate it, to see how it kind of forms one part of a bigger picture, which involves other motivations and other spheres of other historical process. So for example, Soviets uh, in the early years, they didn't have to recruit spies. They could get them from, you know, like, uh, of the Cambridge four and so forth. They could get them to do it without even paying them money for ideological reasons. So ideology was a kind of practical asset. And they were facing extreme international isolation and hostility. They were, you know, they in Weimar Germany were the sort of outcasts of the international system. So what do you have in that situation? You have what we would now call soft power. Um, we have, you know, we present, uh, and so playing up, ideology and world revolution and attracting sympathetic foreign intellectuals who are not necessarily communists, but some of them are, was kind of a very practical move in foreign policy. And so it's hard to separate out the ideological from, say, the foreign policy dimension to that. And I think it's a kind of emblematic of what I'm trying to do is show that it informs it, you know, ideology is there in different ways, but it's not always, you're not always to kind of precisely delineate where it plays a role and how it's part of the mix. And the same thing with, you know, economics and ideology, um, you know, sort of very hard-headed things like getting hard currency were done in the name of building socialism. And so it's hard to say, you know, say that economic interests, rational interests are the opposite of irrational ideology, which is a very typical, I think, misleading kind of um, assumption that a lot of historians don't even kind of address explicitly. Mm-hmm. That, you know, ideologues can be quite rational. They don't have to always be irrational. You know, they can sometimes make temporary compromises, and they, they uh, can sometimes have many different reasons for doing what they do that are not purely ideological ones. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm kind of putting on my uh, economist cap. They have a nice concept called order of preferences. You know, this is what you would prefer and devote resources to over something else. And so would it be correct to say that their order of preferences 
shifted in the 1920s and 30s away from this Mishunarodni Dolk, you know, this, this idea yeah, that they I had think this. There's definitely, there's definitely uh, an evolution. All right, so when the Bolsheviks come to power, you know, remember, um, you know, they, they kind of want to blow up the international system. And Trotsky, they, Trotsky goes to Bresley-Gosk and says, neither war nor peace in the German system. Or they, um, you know, they, they push the uh, war aims, the secret treaties. So they're, 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 and they see themselves as, you know, anyone, and there's actually a clause that anyone can become a Soviet citizen. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if they're a foreign national, but, uh, in, in, in 1918, they, they really believed in this internationalism, but very quickly on, in the course of the Civil War, Bolshevism becomes militarized, and they, they see it. It's essentially socialism in one country becomes a strategy after the failed German Revolution in 1923. So I think that you can see a kind of um, a real evolution here uh, over time in terms of what the priorities are. Um, but they, one, uh, but in some ways, this is what uh, uh, one compar- historian of comparative revolutions called embalming the revolution. You know, you can't say that you're reordering the priorities. Right. And so that's actually one thing that's different from the Soviet Union, is that you had to maintain this ideological orthodoxy. It affects the way social scientists and people thinking about the system, you know, the spread of information, it reflects the way they can think about the evolution of the system. It's just you can analyze foreign countries far more for more effectively in the Soviet Union than you can analyze your own. And so this modern kind of phenomenon of uh, reflexivity, of, of kind of examining yourself using social sciences and so forth, becomes extremely constrained in the Soviet case, and I think that's one part of the rigidity of the Soviet system. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking about the ways in which I was asked to write an article about this recently, and I did, and I guess I said I don't know if I said anything sensible about it, but the way in which Americans thought about the Soviet Union and what it was, and um, I think that they uh, read, um, I, I don't know whether to call it propaganda, because from the Soviet side it might not have been propaganda. They read what the Soviets said about uh, their various interventions in what they called wars of national liberation, and they took them seriously and were urged to do so by Soviet experts, that is, American experts in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. They said, you should take them for their word. They're trying to spread communism. Because that's what they said. Well, yeah. I mean, um, but if you look at Soviet foreign policy, they're often quite cautious internationally. And they often sold foreign communists down the road mm-hmm. when, they, when, when push came to shove. But I think that you're right, that it was sort of a sustaining vision. And in that sense, um, you know, during the Cold War, there was two competing sort of... The U.S. also had this universalistic ideology, sure. right? That, that, you know, modernization and democracy were the end point for all countries. And so that sustained... You know, both sides, that was a certain parallelism there, I think, going on. Uh, but, you know, the question of um, foreign observers is something, you know, I wrote a whole book about yeah. that in Western Visitors, and some of that is in this book. I have some stuff about far right and far left um, foreign observers. Some were much more informed than others, you know. Some really did believe things at face value. Um, like for example, let's take Paul Robeson, you know, who um, 
who lived in the so who visited very frequently, and you know his son was in a Soviet school in the 1930s, and he basically saw you know the absence of the racism, extreme racism he felt in the U.S. It really wasn't at that point present in the Soviet Union. He was, and that made a huge difference to him. But he took what the Soviets said about nationalities policy and the friendship of peoples essentially on face value. But you know, he had his reason. But then, you know, he left. He got his son out right before the Great Terror. He knew enough of what was going on. And yet he never repudiated the Soviet Union. So there were also, even when you allow yourself to see things at face value, you may have certain, you know, other considerations in mind. But there were also people who laid the groundwork for, you know, international Soviet studies who were really immersed in the stuff and really knew what they were talking about. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a real mixed bag between short-term visitors and others. Um, but I have to admit that, um, you know, that's why I see uh, the state of knowledge, say, starting in the 1950s, uh, you know, as radically different from what came before. Uh, and just the, the isolationism of Stalinism and uh, the way foreigners were, uh, you know, anything foreign became very suspect, starting with the kind of ideological xenophobia of the Great Terror, mm -hmm. that it really hampered people's, um, as long as Stalinism was around, it really hampered the level of familiarity that people could mm -hmm. uh, attain. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Kennan in particular, and I, I, he's, a, he's a hard fellow to read, um, Dare I say more of a stylist than a thinker? Wait, <laughs> can you say that? <laughs> um, he, he was more familiar with the system, but he had his own really overt prism by which to see it through. But he was trained, you know, he went to Berlin in the 20s, studied with Otto Hirsch, who was probably the foremost German uh, scholar yeah. of, you know, Ostforschung. Uh, yeah, and so, he, you know, uh, he knew the language. He had a certain sense of it, and he, he he was an acute observer. But he also overlaid this with, you know, his own ideology and his own, which were often, um, you know, uh, there's often this assumption of Russian backwardness and and the eternal Russia that comes in Canada as well as others. Is not backward in terms of what, right? I mean, in terms of the Western great powers, the industrialized. Atlantic West that the Soviet Union is often sitting, competing with, um, or the rest of the world, which you know becomes depends on what you compare it to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me. Um, we, we're about out of time, but I, I've been dying to ask you this question. You spend a lot of time in Russia, and and, and I don't anymore. So I, I wanted to ask you a question, since the book is kind of about what was the Soviet Union. What do the Russians, you know, think the Soviet Union was? Wow. Well, sorry know, to put you on the spot, but quite a bit more nostalgia. But you know, most of the people I interact with have been this sort of um, intellectuals or scholars. I try to, you know, I I meet other people from other walks of life, and I talk to them a lot. And there's a lot of nostalgia for the great power um, position of the Soviet Union, the superpower status, and I think that was always the case with the Russian Empire. There was a kind of, you know, the guns versus butter trade-off was 
you know, not an entirely uh, rational one for, I mean, it wasn't, um, it was apprehended in a certain way that people are willing to tighten their belts if they get a certain vicarious satisfaction from, you know, being a, a great power abroad and in the world. And that goes back to the 19th century and maybe even earlier. Um, but so there's some of that around. There's some ordinary people who are nostalgic, uh, who are against the extreme inequalities of wealth because you couldn't, there were major inequalities and severe hierarchies in the Soviet Union, but they couldn't flaunt wealth in the way today's oligarchs do. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but, I, you know, some of the more, the, the intellectuals tended to reject communism wholesale because they, at least the ones who were experienced it, because, you know, there was so, so much discontent with it that it carried over into the 90s and 2000s, and these people are, you know, Russia is a highly uh, networked, I and mean, a lot of big percentage of urban populations actually goes online and knows a lot about the outside world, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, compared to, say, people in the U.S. Uh, so uh, there, there is a way in which uh, these people were highly critical of the Soviet Union, I've been observing a certain debate now um, where people don't necessarily want to reject an entire system wholesale. There's certain features, say, in the realm of culture or education. Um, you know, they were part of the Soviet system, but if you throw everything out as tainted, then you're really hampered. And so there's a, a different stage in the debate between people who are still very critical of the political system, the ideology, but don't necessarily want to uh, reflexively say everything about it was bad. And I think that's someone like the, the writer Brinkov is taking this position and, you know, others. And I think it's actually similar to the very abstract position I'm thinking about in the terms of the modernity debate. It's called, you know, I just did a, a, um, I just published in Russian uh, in the journal NLO uh, a kind of distillation of this book for a Russian audience. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because they got 10 responses from Russian uh, and international scholars across literature people, social scientists, historians. Uh, to debate, they really are, are equally wondering in this question of Russian modernity and how to consider it is a, is probably a really big is definitely a really big one for them right now, but the position that I was trying to take is this this theory of entangled modernities. So you don't have an entire take an entire system. It's the Soviet system versus the U.S. or another or the German Germany, but there are strands that are interacting across borders. Mm-hmm. At all times, and if you look, and the, some of the political system is very different from some of those other strands that were in the late Soviet Union, in, within society, within the cultural sphere, and so that was kind of a you know there was a kind of disconnect between the rigidity of the political system and the rapidly evolving social and uh, cultural dimensions, and that you know if you think about it, that was similar to what happened in late Imperial Russia. And you had a very rigid autocracy that wouldn't change. It was unreconstructed autocracy. And the society and the 
uh, other parts of the economics were changing really rapidly. Um, and so that, I think, was a recipe for, for state collapse. Whether Russians will completely appreciate that in the very, you know, highly charged and controlled media environment that they're in, mm -hmm. you know, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. a, um, so, but I, I would just say that there's not like a, there's not like a, I, I saw, uh, there's not a uniformity. Mm -hmm. um, that you sometimes see in the media uh, about Russia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's there's quite a lot of currents going on underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Misha. I want to thank you very much for appearing on the New Books Network today. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely. We've been talking to Michael David Fox about his terrific book, Crossing Borders, Modernity, Ideology, and Culture in Russia and the Soviet Union. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network, and I hope that you um, tune in. I always forget to say something other than tune in. People don't tune in anymore, Misha. Do you know that? <laughs> they download now. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, and thank you for listening. Thanks a lot. Sure. Bye.